0: series on the Psalms. So in this series, we're taking the Old Testament Psalms, which are prayers and songs written for the people of God to teach them, train them how to express their heart, how to know what to ask of God, and how to ask for it. And so today, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 51. Now, our readings so far today, I did not realize how heavy that was going to feel to first do Psalm 51, and then read the context behind Psalm 51 with the Second Samuel reading, and then obviously John chapter 19. So it's a lot. This subject is intense. The subject is one of repentance. So Psalm 51 is the prayer of a penitent person. I realize we don't use the language of penitent very much. So basically, Psalm 51 is the prayer of a sorry person, that they're sorry, sorry for what they've done. And so we have the context of this prayer, which is King David, which I'm not going to do a ton of explanation on today. My main focus is going to be on how can we use Psalm 51 when we're sorry? How do we pray it? when we've really screwed things up. Who's done that? Anybody? We're in good company, it looks like. Now, the scriptures and the Christian tradition provide people, I think, with a dignified way to change. It's not motivated by insults or pressure or embarrassment. It's genuine and honest desire for something different. something better. Does anybody ever feel like they need that? When you have this realization, the way I'm doing this is not working, the way I'm doing this is hurtful and harmful, and I want to change that. So what it is, is we see repentance is the act of recognizing that. That what you are believing, or feeling, or thinking, or saying, or doing is wrong is not what you want to be doing or what you feel you should be doing. That it's contrary to goodness. And it's contrary to the dignity you feel like you're created for. That there's this higher goodness that you feel like, if I keep living like this, I'm not going to be a part of that. It's it's this sense we have in our conscience, this feels morally wrong for me to do. It's also things that we recognize, if I keep doing this, it's quite destructive to me. Have You ever felt that? Where you're like, if I keep doing this pattern, this is going to be a problem for me. It's having big impact, big reverberations. And not only is it destructive to yourself, but you also start to see, if I keep doing this, it keeps hurting other people, people I love. That it's getting out of hand. And you don't want to do it anymore. But you can't seem to stop yourself. Has anyone ever felt that? I I feel that quite often. I, I think, to be honest, prepping for this was quite difficult for me. I found myself going, oh, man, like, this is heavy. But also, it's a mirror. And so when I'm looking in the mirror, when I'm reading this prayer and this text of scripture, what I'm seeing is there's a lot of parts of me that I've been kind of struggling with, maybe haven't been addressing. I've been stuck in, and I've kind of wanted to be a little blind to them. You ever notice that about yourself? You're like, I know this is a problem, but I don't really want to face it right now. So reading this was quite annoying because it pushes the issue to be like, nah, I've, I've, I've got to think about this. I've got to see this part of me that I can see it's impacting other people, and I just have been avoiding it. And the reason we avoid it, I think, is it's intimidating. Does anyone find personal change super easy? It's quite difficult, isn't it? But here's the thing I think repentance is something we actually all want, we actually all need. And if we don't have it, like if our ideology or our view of the world or maybe even our family or our workplace doesn't make room for that or doesn't value it, then it doesn't value change. And we're we're essentially forbidden to change. In a way, we are damned to perpetuate the problem over and over and over again. Repentance is essential to the human life actually think. If you've been in a meaningful relationship with anyone, you know you need repentance in order for your relationship to grow into something better, right? That we need it to break the cycle. So the way of Jesus offers us, I think, on the other hand, prizes repentance as one of the highest goods a human being can engage in. Now, when I say that, what that means is we don't just prize repentance for the other people. You know, we, we think all of you should repent because we sufficiently have. You know, it's this, like, weird dynamic. I mean, like, prize it as in it's the thing we love to do currently and always. That's what the way of Jesus does. That for us, it's meant to be a lifestyle an openness to being wrong, permission to be imperfect, to not be all knowing, to be still growing, and to allow ourselves to be weak. That's the permission a lifestyle of repentance gives. Doesn't that sound like relief already? The openness to be imperfect, to be weak. To be insufficient. The willingness to be honest about it, to be vulnerable, to not be shamed or embarrassed because we fall short. In a family or a culture or in the way of Jesus that prizes repentance, we're allowed, we're we're given permission to be honest about it. But in the way of Jesus, we get to be confident that there's a solution for the problem. So this is the big motivator. Not only is it a relief to be honest about repentance, not only does it give me permission to be my true self, but it also gives me the promise of like solution. That this problem that I've been harboring inside has been leaking out and you've been seeing it. I can be honest about it and there's salvation for it. There's help. There's tools, resources. Because Jesus actually works for the things that we need. Is that good news? And then there's this sense of acceptance in the long journey of change. That we don't just go, I've repented, i believed in Jesus, and now it's instantly all different. That does happen. But the more common experience is a long-term journey of change, isn't it? But to be in a community that gets that, it actually speeds up the process. So the Scriptures, though, when talking about issues like this, I think it's important for us to understand that the Scriptures are largely written, so we believe they're divinely inspired. God is writing the Scriptures through people. But the people that he's using are actually really big sinners. Really big screw-ups. So here's an example. Moses, he writes the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses is, doesn't get into the promised land because of his anger. So he gets disciplined by God, doesn't even get to the promised land. David, who we're reading today, rapist, murderer, neglectful father. Solomon has a thousand wives and falls to pagan idolatry. And Paul persecuted and killed Christians. That's the bulk of the New Testament. So, when we look at our authors, we're not wowed by how perfect they are. Our authors, in their brokenness and in their sinfulness, actually end up making the main thing the main thing, which is God. God's the main thing. He's the main story. His promise to save the world and his ability to save the world is the main message of the scriptures. But when we hear about the sinfulness of the writers, I think our instinct in us is to turn our noses up at the thought of this, that this isn't the kind of people we want to be listening to, but here's the thing, aren't these the kind of people that actually fill the world? Like, I'm a pastor, so I work with people, I work with families. And when you deal with real families, you realize there's real big problems. If we just went into the statistics about sexual abuse or physical abuse or all these different types of things within families, we would go, this is not just a small thing, this is a big thing, and it's everywhere, and it's all the time. It's not a small thing. Sin is big. Sin is destructive. Sin is at work within the world. So when that tendency in us to go, oh, to turn away from it and not see it, is it really actually quite unhelpful. Because the reality is it's there. The reality is it's hurting people. And the reality is we need a solution. Don't we? So I I realize you may have come to church and been like, this is not what I was anticipating. If you can trust me a little bit and hold on to the end, we're going to see this comes around to good news. Okay? Because if we're being honest about the problems, it's because we have, we're have we confident that there's very real solutions. Very real solutions to those problems. So let's get into Psalm 51. I don't think I'm going to get through this today. Um, there's 18, 19 verses. It's just not going to happen. So I think I'm going to split this up into two weeks and do the second half next week. Okay? I'm going to be kind to myself and to you by not trying to get through that. So verse one, 1 begins here. The psalmist says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So what we see in verse 1 right away is despite... All the sin that the psalmist sees in themselves, which we're going to look at, he still has this ability, because of the scriptures, to see God clearly. And what's true about God, despite the sinfulness of the psalmist, is that God is merciful. That God is steadfast in love and is abundant in mercy, which kind of alludes to the fact that it's God's desire to blot out transgression. Now, at first thought, you think, man, do we really want people to get away with their crap so easily? But here's the thing. What we want is to eradicate it. To blot it out completely means to destroy it so it's no longer part of the human cycle being passed on from parent to child from parent to child, from parent, you know, on and on and on, to neighbors, we want the problem to be blotted out, don't we? And this is what's being asked of God. Because you're steadfast in love, and because you're abundant in mercy, eradicate the transgression. Blot it out. Make it so it doesn't exist. Verse 2, Specifically, though, wash me. Thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So not only does he see God clearly, he sees the need clearly. That this sin needs to be thoroughly, the iniquity needs to be thoroughly cleansed from him. That it needs to go through everything. It's not like just a, hey, sorry about that and then we forget about it. He's saying, I need to be Thoroughly cleansed so that I don't perpetuate it. This infection of sin, this disease, the solution needs to be thorough in me. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Do you ever find yourself reluctant to be honest that you're the problem? (laughs) I do that all the time at home, all the time in my marriage. Things are going off. We're grumpy. We're disconnected. But I'm going to hold the line and be like, not me. I'm not the problem here. Have you ever done that? And it just kind of elongates it, days turn into a week. And everyone's kind of looking at you, at me, like, are we going to deal with this? I'm like, it's not me. Not the problem here. You all got to look at all you. That's the real problem. And I can hold that stance for a little while, but eventually the weight gets heavier and heavier to be like, no, it's me. It's me, I'm the grumpy one. I got some things going on. and I've been short, and I've been mean, and I've been selfish, and it's time for me to talk about that. This is what we're getting to. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So he's seeing himself clearly of what he's responsible for. I know what I've done and how I keep on doing it. And it's always in my mind. I'm always thinking about it. And there are no excuses for it. Now, I know when when we talk about human relationships, we're often trying to do the work of saying who's responsible. You know, let's have this discussion to figure out who's really responsible. But what we see in the way of Jesus is, the most impactful thing is to always live together as saying, how am I responsible? Because whatever little piece of the puzzle I'm contributing to, I want to bring salvation into that piece. It doesn't mean other people don't have problems. And we're not blind to that fact, but there's something transformative to the situation when we're all equally taking responsibility and willing to believe, to face who we are, and to look for the solution. Verse 4. The psalmist then says, against you, God, and you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why is the sin against God and God only? We've clearly identified in the Second Samuel reading that God sees the other people that are hurt by this. David, in this situation, has, has arranged for the death of a righteous man, has stolen his wife, has destroyed a family and a home, and an infant child is even going to die as part of this process. There's a lot of mess, isn't it? So is it right for David to say, against you, God, and you only have I sinned? The point that he's making here is that God is David's creator and highest authority. And God's design for him was to exist within his love and his perfect provision forever. God even makes David king, anoints him as king, defeats his enemies as he goes through in 2 Samuel. God has been David's personal source of comfort and protection, strength, hope, and redemption all through his life. But here's what it comes down to. Sin of any kind always begins with a turn away from God's love first. So whenever we hurt people, abuse people, exploit people, take from people, are mean to people, it first starts by turning away from God's goodness and saying, I'm going to take things into my own hands. I'm going to get what I want, get what I need, make it happen. Right? Right? That that's always the first sin. So what's being communicated here is that that God's vision was always that David David would be perfectly loved in him and then would love the world, be a gift to the world and to the creation. But when David rejects that love, he then turns all of that need and all of that desire onto other people and then takes them for whatever he thinks he needs. And exploits them. But the root sin of the problem is first rejecting God's goodness. And then going out and taking what he wants. David goes on in verse 4 and says, that So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David essentially is saying, I've sinned against you first and mostly. And you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment, in your assessment of what I've done. Basically, David is not rebuttaling. David is not arguing his case. He's not saying, well, it's because of these circumstances that I made this decision. David is saying, you see it. You know it. I, I accept. He agrees with his judgment fully and says that God is justified in the consequences and judgment that he presents. Now, when you read the two texts of Scripture, you read the Second Samuel, you read what David did. He steals a wife, uses his power and position to just take a wife from someone else. The man is righteous and good and has character, so David has to kill him to cover up his sin. And he goes through this whole process of getting him sent out on the front lines and then abandoned, and so the enemy defeats him and kills him. When God comes back to David through Nathan and says that whole parable of the story of the man and the sheep, David's response is, this man deserves to die. And if, if if you were just king over the land and you heard this story, that's essentially kind of the right response is to be like, this man deserves to be punished to the fullest degree of the law. Right? If we heard that story, we would go, we want this guy to be punished. And then God lays out the discipline and the judgment. And when we read through it, we realize everything David did to Uriah and to Bathsheba, God is now going to do to him but more. That This is the fruit of his works. You sowed destruction, and now you're reaping destruction. These are uncomfortable things for us to talk about, but these are the types of decisions people make all the time. I sit with people all the time who are like, I blew up my family, and I blew up my marriage when I made this decision. Or I screwed over my business partner, and I ruined his life. These are real-life decisions that happen all the time, and you know it. You hear it all the time. And you just hope it's not going to be you. But this is where David's going, look, this is the honest outcome of my choices. God's not being unfair with me. God's justified if he's truly fighting for Uriah. God's justified if he's truly fighting for Bathsheba. And we see in this whole conversation how God is going to deal with every king or person in authority through David's story. So think about that. Every government that's existing today, when they screw over the little guy and exploit the poor and the broken, this is how God is going to deal with them. That's good news, isn't it? In the sense of like we want God to act against the evil abusers. David is seeing himself as in that category. And he's not fighting it. He's going, no, I did this. And there's something that what we see in the turn here is where the person goes, let me be honest about what I've done and honest about the impact and be truly, honestly repentant to God. And then we'll see what kind of salvation can come from Him. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So now David is doing an interesting thing. He's saying, not only did I commit these things, but I actually see in my life story that this seed was planted long ago in my life. So scholars kind of disagree on this point, but some of them think that what this statement means is that David was conceived through an affair, that his mom potentially cheated on his father, Jesse, and was conceived in an affair. The other option that we see scholars talk about is David's referring to this idea of original sin. From the moment I was born, sin has been work at work in me. Now, this is part of my story. So I was conceived out of wedlock. I know more about the circumstances surrounding that than I'd like to. But it's this like shameful story of my parents' upbringing. My grandfather was a pastor. So my mom became pregnant by my dad. They had to do public repentance in front of the church. This terrible handling of the situation. But so the way I always understood the story growing up is that I was kind of born of shame. That's how I saw myself. That I was a mistake, an accident, and an embarrassment. This is kind of how David's processing it. He's saying, so if it's true, the kind of adultery story, this idea that this has always been my origin. I've all, I was always born of sexual promiscuity or whatever. But it brings up this interesting point of going, when we're stuck in these sinful patterns... It's actually helpful not only to repent for what we've done and the impact that it's had for people, but to look back over our story and go, where did this start? Because there's a story that contributed to today. I find that comes up consistently in my marriage and in my family. Like an angry outburst. I look back in the story of my family and go, you know, this is what I was taught to do, to get angry, to yell, and to realize this is not a story I want to continue on in your generation. So not only am I sorry about today, but I'm sorry about a life of this. I'm sorry about my parents in anger in this. I'm sorry about my grandparents in anger. That we're changing the narrative through repentance. So he, even though he may have been conceived in sin... This is no longer going to be the defining story because of his repentance. Verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This level of honesty with yourself is what God delights in. Where you are not seeking to deceive him, you're not seeking to deceive yourself or others, but you're just honest about where you're really at, who you really are, and what you're really struggling with. David sees that this is God's delight. How could God possibly delight in the skeletons in your closet? How could God possibly delight in your marital dysfunction? How could God possibly delight in your secret sins? Because He has a solution for them. It's the only reason God would delight. It's not He delights in it because He's been excited for eternity past to bring a hammer of wrath down upon you. That's not the good news of Jesus. He delights in honesty because He saves sinners. Isn't that the good news? And this is the incredible relief that humanity finds when they meet Jesus in the Gospels. Is they're like, you can know how bad I am. How much I'm struggling. How hard this life is for me. How sick I am. Let me just be fully honest with you. And Jesus goes, I love you. And I'll heal you. This is the heart of God. That's why He delights in the presence of sinners. So the thing we most fear Being honest about how bad it is is the very place that God then delights because He can handle it. Because He's not afraid of it. And David puts it this way. In this place, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So what is the wisdom that God wants to teach? How to get your crap together? Is that the wisdom? Is it solid advice on what you need to do to change and be different? Is that God's wisdom? I say this all the time in our church. We don't give good advice. We give good news. Here's the wisdom. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. So God is saving the world from sin through the person and work of Jesus. So if we're honest about it, then we can meet Jesus there. That You can't understand and enjoy the wisdom of God in Christ without being honest with yourself, because it all just remains theoretical. That's where you end up with Christians in church that go, "I know all there is to know about Jesus, but my life is no different, and I'm a generally angry, mean, crotchety person. It's a disconnect between the good news in theory and your life in reality. This is why the honesty is so valuable to God, because whatever is denied cannot be healed. That's a quote from Brennan Manning. So what this looks like, I think, in the way of Jesus for us is when I know things are off and I know I'm not feeling like myself and I know I'm acting in ways that are hurtful towards others, I try to give myself time to identify what I'm believing, to name what I'm feeling, to understand what I'm thinking, all is a confession and a repentance before God. Because I can often tie it and go, man, I've been believing I'm alone, or that i got to do this all by myself. So my emotions are super inflamed. I'm overwhelmed, I'm angry, I'm sad. My thoughts... Are, all, are obsessive about how I need to fix the problem and then my actions are erratic. Or I'm pulling away from everyone. Or I'm anxious in my body. This is what repentance looks like is to go, this is the truth of where I'm at, God. I'm hurting. I'm a mess. But I need help. Verse 7 is the response to that prayer. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David sees God's wisdom, which is the salvation design. The hyssop plant comes up big in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. It's small, it's aromatic, and it's a medicinal plant. It looks similar to lavender. I couldn't find any in any of the greenhouses around the area. But What they would do is they dip it in blood, in the blood of a sacrificed animal, and then they would sprinkle it. So in Exodus, we see hyssop is used to spread the blood of the lamb over the doorposts after the Passover meal. In Leviticus, hyssop and blood is used to cleanse a leper. In Numbers, it's used to cleanse a person who came in contact with the dead and is unclean. Hyssop is about this mix of beauty with sacrifice and suffering. It's like the hyssop plant is the humanity of Jesus and it's perfect goodness, but it's dipped in the blood of his sacrifice and then placed on the sinner. The prayer is, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So fundamentally, this is what the way of Jesus is about in Psalm 51. is in the presence of Jesus, you can finally be honest. You can be honest about what's going wrong, What's happened to you what hurts and where the mess is. That God delights in your open heartedness. Think about that. He's not going to crush it. He's not going to break you. He's not going to come down on you with expectations. He's going to delight in your fragility. And then he's going to respond by giving you the hyssop in the blood. The tenderness of Jesus' presence to know you and understand you, and the extent of his love to give his life for you to blot out those sins. Everything you've committed, and the backstory, and the family of origin patterns, all of those things go on the cross with Jesus to be crucified and killed. We're honest about what's wrong because Jesus kills what's killing. Isn't that the good news? Next week, what we'll look at is what restoration looks like. We'll look at what a community of this looks like and how it contributes to this praise and worship to go. We're different people than when we started. But first, we have to sit in this moment to go. We've got to be honest, and we've got to receive the sacrifice. Somebody's got to pay for this mess. Somebody has to kill what's killing us. And that somebody is the wisdom of God in Jesus. So in this moment, if you're comfortable with it, close your eyes. And feel the presence of Jesus. Feels like safety. It's not accusatory. But it's an invitation to be fully honest for the first time. So let's examine ourselves and repent in order that we might experience his redemption through Jesus Christ. So take a moment for private confession for you to make known to God all the things that are in your heart.